to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode. I can feel it in my body and my spirit already. Um, we're going to be talking about some things that are very near and dear to my heart. Mental health. We're going to be talking about spirituality. We're also going to be talking about sports. I'm a big sports geek. So guys, if you love all those things, you definitely need to listen to this gentleman we're going to be talking to next. Amazing author, two-time TEDx speaker, pastor, which I really love because I, I love my brothers in Christ. So I think it's going to be a great episode. Daryl, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's my honor. Uh, you know, and today has been Daryl Stinson Day. I've listened to, I think, almost every podcast you've ever been on. So I, because I wanted to get to you. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, man. What, what was your favorite podcast that I've been on? Um, It was, I just finished listening to it, not even like seven minutes ago. It was, uh oh, I can't remember now. It was about, um, it was a sports podcast that you were on. And the thing that touched me so much. And, and I made me cry actually. So I am a big wussy uh, about how your grandma um, was always praying for you. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and that just broke me down. So uh, <laughs> if I'm talking to you, I got a tear in my eye as we're talking. So brother, I just want to say thank you for coming on. So what's new in your world. And then we're going to hop into the way back machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, what is new in my world? Um, I think that, you know, just elevating the voices of others. I set a goal three months ago to impact a million people in 12 months. And and I wanted to do that in part by empowering other speakers to get out there and share their story, because I recognize that our perspectives are unique and it, it helps when we have voices who have followed similar journeys than than. I have. And so, you know, while I love to be a speaker and I love to talk about mental health and my journey as an athlete and all the things that I'm passionate about, uh, other people are passionate about other things and they're waiting for voices to step up, overcome that fear of public speaking, own that stage and share their story, make an impact and that only they can make. So that's been my focus is speaking and empowering other speakers. And then, of course, just always staying grounded in what matters the most, my faith, my family, my community. And you got, I don't know how you able to ever get into the bathroom having all those girls in that house. But uh, oh, I've got this outhouse out back, you know, they send me they send me back there because <laughs> yeah, I, I got one girl and I, I, I could hardly take it. So I could imagine. How oh, it yeah. Is. Having, you know, your all your princesses in your house. Oh, yeah. My closet space is like the downstairs where the people put their coats. You know, that's where that's where I get closet space, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. It's fun living with women, man. So um, we're going to go back now. Um, me, my personal thought is I'm going to ask you a lot of questions that you're probably not used to getting asked because I, I'm the male Oprah. So I just want to let you know that even though you're not going to win a free car. Um and so I want to go back and I want to talk, go way back to where you're from and talk to us about little Daryl and how he was as a little child. Mm. You want to talk about little Daryl. What would you like to know about little Daryl? How were you? Uh, what, what was it like growing up 
and yeah. just getting into your mindset that, you know, as a young child, were you an, were you a child that liked to read? Were you a child that liked to be active? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, it's funny. Um, every, the thing I like about speaking, and especially when I speak to the same audience year after year, or in some cases, I've, you know, I've even done it as much as once every week. And it forces you to review your life in a new way. And I, I think one of the relevant stories of my childhood that relates to so many people is, is I remember uh, two vivid instances in my childhood. One is, you know, I, I grew up just a curious kid. I was smart. I, I I always did my homework. Like I would do it before I did anything else. I was extremely disciplined. Um, school was easy. School was fun until school was not, you know. And, uh, well, you know, I always tell the story that I told in my TEDx talk that and my mom, my mother put me in accelerated learning classes when I was in the third grade because she noticed how smart, how charismatic I was. And I passed some tests that showed that, you know, I had high IQ. And so uh, I was in this accelerated learning class and I was probably the smartest kid in my class, which is a, a pretty heavy statement considering some of the people that have come out of that class and looking at what they're doing with their lives today is just so amazing. Uh, but what I'm, I'm from Jackson, Michigan, and me being in an accelerated learning class, what that meant that I was one of two black students in an all-white class. And there was nothing wrong with this. It actually made worked in my favor. I stood out. Uh, people cheated off my test. They laughed at my jokes. They nicknamed me Goon because I was this big, goony, like goofy-looking guy. And uh, I was living, living my best life. And um, one day I was coming back from the bathroom break and I noticed a group of black students circled together laughing hysterically in the hallway and I was just like hey let me go in here make some jokes and see what's so funny so I walk over to them and I'm just like hey yo what's so funny no one answers and I'm like I know they hear me you know and so I spoke up I'm like what y'all over there laughing about and I couldn't even finish my sentence before one of the students turned towards me and said your was funny white boy and the crowd just cracked up, man. And I had no clue what that meant. And I walked away feeling ashamed and rejected. And what I say to people is that was the moment that I believed the dangerous lie that who I was authentically wasn't enough to be liked or loved by other people. And what I know um, now that I didn't know then is that rejection has a way of making us feel like we're not good enough. I mean, something as simple as you know, people who want to go out for drinks and uh, to have dinner after work and you're not invited. And now you take that moment of rejection and go, well, what's so wrong with me? What's wrong with the way that I talk? What's wrong with my dress? What's wrong with my performance? Like, obviously, something has to be wrong with me since I'm not fitting in with this group. And it changes for everyone. But rejection has us question our identity. And that's what I did. And, you know, that you know, led to me starting to question, you know, if I should talk the way that I talked, if I should have the habits that I had, even though they were serving me at, at the time, they weren't serving me socially um, with this group of students. And so I just started slowly but surely kind of making, you know, compromises in certain areas to fit in with other people. So, you know, if they were playing and extra route around the ball after, after, school, I would kind of skip out on that and I would go hang out and run the streets and, and, you know, steal bikes or something, just doing dumb stuff because 
that's what these other groups of friends were doing. And uh, ultimately, man, that that led me down a road to where I, I made a lot of changes about my identity to fit in with the black community. So let me stop there and just see what other questions you may have. No, because I'm very interested because when I grew up and obviously I'm, I'm an old white dude now, uh, but I went to one of the high schools that I went to because I got thrown out of like five of them. It, I was the only white guy. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so I, I kind of understand what you're talking about, you know, um, but, you know, I got ingrained into the culture, you know, and um, and eventually, you know, I like me, I I don't ever see color. I don't see black. I don't see white. Maybe that's because I was in the military for 23 years and all I see is green. You know, everybody's just a person, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, and, and for me, I, I kind of went on the right, wrong side of the tracks, you know, uh, got mixed up, messed up with drugs, alcohol, blah, blah, blah. So what was it like in high school when you finally moved up into high school, moving into puberty? You know, so what was that like going into high school? Well, high school was completely different because I had a complete transformation um, in terms of who I was. So whereas the third grader, I was kind of like this goody two shoes kid. And that moment happened and I started to kind of, you know, make <clears throat> poor decisions. And in about the seventh grade, my cousin's mother, my auntie Stephanie, got shot and killed in broad daylight. And uh, that caused him to move in with us because his father was in prison. And he brought in a whole nother group of friends that were making w- terrible decisions, skipping, you know, at the seventh grade, they were skipping school. They were selling drugs. They were. Uh, trying to have sex and, um, you know, uh, without protection and just do all these things and uh, lots of fights and violence. And, um, you know, that was who was around me every day since my cousin came and moved in with me. So I started to be like them and 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 rap and skip school and, and get in fights. I actually got suspended from seventh grade 10 times, which definitely which should have got me expelled from the public school system. But it was just one of those things where the principal there gave me one more chance and uh, allowed me to have that last suspension as in-school suspension. So by the time I got to the uh, high school, you know, it was full-blown street personality person. You know, like I was, you know, I was probably still getting, you know, C's and B's because I was just smart to like know how to pass tests, but I was I was not applying myself. I think I skipped one of my classes for an entire year, never, ever you know, finished it and completed that class. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, I used to go to school, you know, high off drugs and all while being a star athlete. So I'm playing sports all the time, man. I mean, like summer, I I played three sports like freshman year and then two sports sophomore year and then, you know, two sports for the rest of, you know, my career, which was basketball and football. And I played them both all year round competitively. And so, you know, it was always, you know, another game, another, uh, you know, media interview, because uh, probably when I hit sophomore year, um, I had a breakout year for my season because I was a sophomore who was leading our varsity in scoring. And then um, and then uh, I played on a really good AAU basketball team that got me some international or national attention, excuse me. Um, and, and after that, it was kind of a wrap. I was on everyone's radar for basketball. And uh, I was still doing numbers in football. And so, uh, yeah, college was just that's what it was. It was the party. It was the drug dealer slashed, 
you know, uh, star athlete lifestyle. And I was a typical jockey with a big head ego, you know, <laughs> and uh, earned a full ride scholarship to go to Central Michigan University. Now, do you think because, you know, I've had I've talked to a lot of professional athletes and I've met a lot of professional athletes. And, you know, I used to train guys from WWE, NFL and, and Major League Baseball, NBA. And some of them got pushed through high school and through college years just because they were, you know, a, a three star, four star. But when you talk to them, they couldn't put a sentence together. So do you see that as a problem of or do you see things starting to get better with with, with that? No, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem because a lot of times the reason why the athletes are some of the, those type of athletes are so good is because they usually come from rough backgrounds and they've got a chip on their shoulder and a and and something to prove and it's their only hope and so they're they're focused solely on the sport and academics although they say it's student first and athlete it's not the reality it's athlete first and student so the academics just become a standard where you you really just want to maintain eligibility versus to stretch yourself to your full potential academically and and i think a lot of it is on the culture i think there's a lot of thing administration could do i think there's a lot of things that the athlete themselves can do but i i think a big majority of it is just like the sheer time that it takes at the collegiate level uh to to succeed at sports and, and get ahead it just takes too much time commitment that you you don't have any more energy to excel academically. Not saying it can be done, not saying that it's not possible, just saying that I think that there's changes that we can make to be able to make it a little bit easier uh, for students. And that's, you know, a lot of people don't understand, like there's this red shirt thing that you can do and gray shirt um, in college athletics, red shirt, meaning that you cannot actively play your freshman year um, at at college and that they will, you know, not count that against your, your year of eligibility. So you'd still get four more years of scholarship to play. That's extremely important for the academic success of a student athlete, because now they have an extra year if they so choose to stretch out a four-year degree. And that's so important. So now when I'm playing during season, I can take as least amount of credits as possible because I'm traveling, I'm playing, I'm sore, I'm catching up. And that way when I'm off season that I will have, I can pick up the credits a little bit and then do some throughout the summer. And if we sprinkle it out that way, I think it, it enables the student athlete to have some uh, better success academically. Okay. So I have a question because um, I, like I said, once, first of all, I just want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us today. My it's pleasure appreciated but what are your thoughts now because i know the ncaa are, are paying at paying athletes now and <laughs> funny thing is my son are they are they paying athletes yep they're starting to i think it's this year or the end of next year oh, man but show me my, the check <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my my son goes to coastal carolina and uh our football team is doing really well but it's just i don't see you know Maybe because I'm seeing it from the outside, you know, I just don't see um, athletes getting paid for from the NCAA, you know, from colleges. What are your thoughts on that? <sighs> I, I I am I am not in a position to have okay. something that I would say is good enough for Marks to 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 give an answer. 
I can say that I think we're headed in the right direction. I think it's going to be messy. Uh, I I don't know if the current terms of agreements are in everyone's best favor, and uh, but it's a good step to explore and test the waters a little bit. Cool. Um, I, I just I just I, the only thing I would say is is recognize that it's it's in my opinion we should consider more so than the the dollar amounts that are involved that we take into consideration the emotional and mental maturity of our student athletes. That that's it. You know, and I, and I love it. And the reason why I, I wanted to bring this up because there, there's a kid, he plays center for the um, coastal and this kid weighs every bit of 380 pounds. So I know, you know, <sighs> just to eat three times a day, got to be starving. And, and I'm sure it costs a lot, especially like for me, you know, I was in the health and fitness industry and in the supplement industry. It's got to be very expensive to eat and for supplementation just to stay healthy, correct? Oh, my gosh. It's so much. Yeah. yeah. And every position is different. Um, you know, I came in and I needed to gain that amount of weight. Like, I think I, at one point I was trying to gain a pound a week. And that is expensive. But there are some people who come in, they need to lose weight, you know, so they don't actually have that expense. But either way. Uh, I don't think the conversation is to to compensate athletes so that they can afford basic needs. I think the conversation is to compensate athletes because they make the university a ton of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you know, and 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 they and, and they need need part of that share, you know, and it makes it makes sense. It really does. Uh, but I think that how we do it is is important, and 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 I know that uh, the current legislation has taken that into consideration from what I've heard. Uh, But I I think that there's this emotional and mental maturity level that a student athlete uh, needs to be at uh, before uh, we, we give them too much too soon and how much is too much too soon. I don't know. I don't have a way to measure that accurately. I just know somebody smarter than me, should take that into consideration. <laughs> so, so, I got it. Yeah. So high school, what position did you play? And when you got, um, when you got to go play college football, what position did you go play? Yeah, I played uh, defensive end uh, in my senior year in high school. But all throughout high school, I was a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, special teams kicker. <laughs> I played every position uh, just because I was athletic enough to do so. And uh, it, it was fun. And I, you know, I think to, to this day, one of my greatest regrets might've been not going to quarterback school or something, because I think like a quarterback, I don't think like a defensive end. And I think I would have been a much better quarterback than I was a defensive end. And I was a really good defensive end. Um, but yeah, so that and then for basketball, I played like uh, power forward and center at my college. But when I was on the road, I played shooting guard and small forward because I was playing with people who were much much taller than I was. So uh, yeah, that was that. And when in college, I, I kept the D in position. They 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 moved me to O line for like two weeks, and then they were like, "Nah, this isn't gonna work out." <laughs> so they moved me back to back to D in. 
and uh, it was much better for me. Well, they say if you ever want to, if you ever want to get rich, learn how to play left tackle. You, there's a lot of money to be made in the NFL with a left tackle. Yeah, if you want to be rich and and have a rewarding career, that might be a good idea. Or be a quarterback would be a better idea. <laughs> so now, uh, what happened to you? Why you know did you not you know continue on with your career? You had a devastating injury, correct? Yeah. So my my I play I burned my I played my freshman year um, very little, but I played and uh, and so. Uh, towards the end of my freshman year, I started to have some some lower back problems and they just, you know, they allowed me to travel, but I was still lifting <clears throat> with the people who didn't travel. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> so, yeah, they allow, allowed me to travel. And um, towards the end of my freshman year, I was squatting and trying to show the upperclassmen how much I could lift, you know, impress everybody. And I came up the wrong way and I knew that I did something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And it, it was just in pain. I thought maybe I just like overstretched a ligament or something. And I got it checked out. And, um, you know, I didn't know the difference between being hurt and being injured. So I thought that I was hurt, but I really was injured. So I thought that I just had to stretch the ligament. I just needed to ice it. And so I practiced with it for probably about two and a half, three months. And, um, not knowing that I was on a pinched nerve. And so finally it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse till uh, finally, I mean, I, I, I had, I couldn't even sleep through the night. So I get up and I go and I finally get, you know, an MRI and I have to have emergency back surgery because my left leg is getting ready to go paralyzed because of how long my, the pinched nerve in my back had been deteriorating my left leg muscle. And so, uh, you know, I think I got my MRI results on a Friday. The doctor came in on like a Sunday and did my surgery. It was so crazy. He was booked for six months. So that's how serious of an issue it was. And um, I, I get this surgery and uh, it, 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 it should be game over. Like, the you know, it's a double laminectomy surgery. It was relatively simple. They cut me open. They removed uh, several portions of the bones that were pinching the nerves and then they shifted it to the left a little bit and then they sold me up and called it a day. And uh, that's a pretty serious back surgery because the spinal injury, it takes a long time to heal. And the way that I, you know, the coaches were like, we'll still honor your scholarship. You can come around football whenever you want. So you've got this golden ticket to focus on your education and still have all the fun in the world uh, being a part of the, the football team. But that, that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be in. And so I begged them to allow me to come back from the game and play. And so I, I always tell people the story this way. It's like I was, wasn't supposed to walk more than a mile within six months after my surgery. But I ended up walking. I ended up earning a starting position within six months. So I, I did not heal correctly. I um, um was using opioids to numb the pain to come back and play the game of football. And uh, t I, I knew that I would need more opioids than what they were prescribing me to. So I found a way to manipulate the healthcare system and go to different doctor's offices to get more and more prescription medication. Uh, all those doctor visits cost money, those co-pays, all that stuff that I had to pay cost money. And so I started to sell drugs even more to cover the cost of my healthcare expenses. And, you know, for two years, you know, I was living a double life on the outside. I was this, 
in the outside in the daylight, I would say, as I was this charismatic, you know, starting defensive lineman for, you know, the Chippewas, who is a good guy and a class A citizen. And behind the scenes, I was a drug dealer, <laughs> you know, selling drugs all throughout the state of Michigan and uh, developing a drug addiction to the opioids I was taking. And that was my life for two years until it came to a crashing halt my senior year. You know, um, by the way, you're, you're really touching my heart because I am um, a recovering addict. I've got 33 years clean January. Um, so awesome. it, it really touches, touches me. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that um, over 73,000 people every year die of opioid mm-hmm. uh, overdoses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm and I'm guessing you know, when you first started, nobody ever plans on becoming an addict. Not and at all. Then when you have to, you know, they say, get like they all say, you know, get high on your own supply um, and, you, and you have to start doing it just so you don't get dope sick. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, at that point, it's it's just surviving. It's not even feeling better. Now you're just taking the opioids just so you're not throwing up and puking. You know what I mean? Man, the opioid conversation is such a large one because it's it's similar to the mental health conversation that I that I'm often a part of. It's 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 so it's such a varying degree of addiction that people just have such a negative stigma around an addict. And not that being an addict is a good thing, but that not every person who's an addict is like shoving needles in their arm, hiding underneath the bridge, can't control themselves, you know, slobbering. And 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 one dirty needle away from the end of their life. That's not everyone's reality. Uh, there's spectrums to it, and there's things called functioning alcoholics. There are people who are sex addicts, and like so. There's just a it's just a variety. And I know because I do a significant amount of work here in Metro Atlanta in the addiction recovery space. So I'm very familiar with the territory and the nuances. Um, the thing I would just say is, of course, be careful of of allowing um you know something that could you know taking advantage of the healthcare system you know they they're, they're expecting that if they give you a 30-day supply that you're going to use this 30-day supply but a lot of people you know will will not use it and then they'll double up and they'll get a refill and they'll just get a couple of refills and now they're stacked and now they're popping two or three and they're three months ahead so you know they never get discovered and then now they when they finally catch up to the monthly prescription, then they're like, well, wait, I can't keep taking this amount because I only get a 30 day refill every time. So now where do I get more? And then it becomes uh, a whole drug deal, you know? And so um, we just got to watch out for these warning signs and, uh, and make sure that we're building quality relationships with people, checking in on people we care about. I'm telling you right now, you'd be surprised about the number of people who have mental health issues or addiction issues who you would never know. They might be your favorite hero. Um, you know, I, I, the story that comes to mind is Robin Williams. You yeah. know, I use him often in my talk. Like, think about that. Like, that's that's just his whole story in, in public. I never forget. Why, I don't know if you followed his journey much, but if you watch his interview, there's an interview with him and they're, they're asking him how he got started in comedy. And he starts talking about how he used comedy to get his mother's attention because they were always too busy. Mm-hmm. And that's how. And, and, and so the, the interviewer is like fascinated that this kid has 
developed this gift of comedy as a, a skill and has been doing it since a childhood. And I'm like, you're missing the, the warning sign. Yeah. Like his whole life is built on the fact that he didn't get love from the person he was supposed to get the most love from. Yeah. <laughs> and, and nobody stopped the interview and said, whoa, whoa, how how does that make you feel? You know, instead, we're like, whoa, that's why you're a great actor. And I'm like, no, talk about the 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 downside of that. And sure enough, you know, ultimately, you know, and yeah, they said he had some mental illness going on. And um, and I'm not denying that his brain was shutting down or anything, but still, he ultimately made the decision to end his own life. And I think part of it is because we get used to seeing people's gifts instead of seeing the person that's behind the gift. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of actors have a very high suicide rate and a very high addiction rate. But now question. Now, I want you to take us into because I had my own suicide attempt um, Memorial Day of 2012. And thank God it didn't go through. He saved me. Um, Talk to us about when your life came crashing down. Yeah. So, you know, my going into my senior, so my junior year was a wreck. You know, I was missing a lot of practices because um, I kept having these frequent nosebleeds and um, and I, I was blaming them on allergies. And I think early on in that year, that preseason game, we had this game against Michigan State, which was a really, really big game, obviously. Uh, and I was kicking. They had Kirk Cousins and uh, we obviously had our players, too. But I uh I came out the gate blazing. I mean, I got a couple of QB rushes on Kurt, and they were like, yeah, since it's fit to dominate this whole game, we're going to beat Michigan State again. You know, we just had beat them two years earlier. And um, I, my nose has started bleeding, and I was not the same after the first quarter in that nosebleed, and it did not recover. My nose was bleeding because I was taking so many opioids that they were thinning my blood that every time I would – you know, get going on the field too much or make contact that my nose would bleed. And then I would have to play the remainder of the game with nose plugs in my nose, or if I was at practice with nose plugs and uh, coaches kind of, you know, that was their big sign of like, this shouldn't be happening. You know, he's, it was a nice day. There's no reason why this kid should be having allergies. <laughs> and so uh, they started to catch up and and then I started to develop this permanent hunch in my back. Cause you know, I was just, my back was tired of taking a beating And so they noticed, like, man, he can't stand up straight. He's not running the same. He's lost a step in his speed. He's not stretching out. He's having frequent nosebleeds. Man, we think this guy's this guy's out. You know, like he's he's hiding some stuff from us. And they were right. I was. And so they called me out on it. And I denied it, of course. But eventually, they just said, "Hey, um, we just want to let you know we can't we can't let you continue anymore." And I don't even know what they were trying to say after that. That's all I heard. <laughs> and I got mad. I think I knocked some stuff off and I just, I cussed them out, man. I was pissed because I feel like, I feel like they quit on me. I feel like they, they, they quit on my dream. I feel like there was so much more they could have did to support my rehabilitation, but they didn't. And I was angry and I left and I was mad at the world. And um, I was trapped because I had a decision to make. Was I going to devote my time, my energy, my effort towards another career path that I wasn't passionate about? Or or was I going to just be a drug dealer for the rest of my life? And I didn't like any of those narratives. Uh, I didn't think that anything in life would fulfill me as much as sports did. 
Uh, I, I didn't even know who I truly was without that identity as an athlete because I had changed everything about myself since the third grade and then more dramatically in the seventh grade when my cousin came and moved in with me. And so I was like, I don't even know who Daryl is. I don't know what my real laugh is, what the actual music I like. I, I'm so confused. I'm like, I'm 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 over like I was just I can't unexplain. It. I was so lost. And um, I, I, I started to feel like, man, nobody really cares about me since. I'm not an athlete and the coach, the coaches weren't calling and checking in on me anymore. My players were finishing out their season and, you know, uh, making national television plays and they weren't checking in on me anymore. Uh, people on campus weren't hitting me up. I wasn't getting, my phone wasn't ringing for post-game interviews. I wasn't actively trying to sell drugs. So I was, my phone went from ringing all the time and being busy all the time to doing nothing. And I was, and, and I started to have these battles with depression like, why am I here? Nobody really cares about me. I bet you if I was gone, they wouldn't notice that I uh, that I wasn't here any longer. And um, the I was confiding in one person during this time, which was my girlfriend, who was my high school sweetheart. She uh, and I had been dating since high school, and uh, she followed me to Central Michigan, and I would tell her every time I feel depressed. And one day when I reached out to her in the middle of um, – I, I call it a minor suicide attempt, but I don't think that there's anything such as minor, you know, but, you know, I was trying to, you know, take overdose on pills and I reached out to her to just come help me and talk to me and be with me. And she wouldn't. And uh, I soon learned that it was because she had left me and got engaged to another man because I was no longer going to the NFL. And that was it for me. Um, she left. I didn't have that stability. I, I wasn't going to come out and talk to anybody else about it because I was embarrassed. And, and uh, I, I just, I just caved and I imploded. And uh, the attempts got more serious. I started drinking whole fifths of alcohol, getting in a car, hoping that a car accident would end it all. I would uh, um, look up how to commit suicide and research all these ways. I remember one time swallowing a whole bottle of oxycodone and uh, hoping that I wouldn't wake up the next morning. And uh, one day I sat in this blue Dodge Stratus and uh, made my final attempt. And uh, I wrote my suicide letter and uh, I turned my phone on silent. And I had planned to drive 75 miles per hour onto oncoming traffic off of a highway. And um, I went to go do that. And I started raving 75 miles per hour down a 35 mile per hour road. And I'm crying and I've got tears in my eye and I have my music cranked up. And out of the corner of my eye, I see my cell phone blinking. And I look at it and it's my mother calling me and I go to hit the end button. But because I was still driving, um, I wasn't like paying attention all the way. And I and and I was obviously on drugs. So I accidentally hit the the, the answer button and my mother. Oh, God. Sorry. No, that is, um, this is what it's all about. I mean, you know, sometimes you go on podcasts and it's all fluff. This is real. You know, this is real stuff between two brothers that have gone through this. And the funny thing is you're talking about this and that was exactly how I attempted my suicide and thank God it didn't go through. So please go ahead. Get, Cause the Lord used your mom to save your butt. Yeah. So my mother 
my mother in the first words that come out of her mouth was just like Daryl Daryl and I'm shocked because I'm like what you know she's like I don't know what's going on right now but I need you to come let me help you like I, I don't know what's going on but I just felt like I should call you and I knew she was right and she probably could hear the tears and hear my voice when I had answered and said what and so she convinced me to drive from Mount Pleasant Michigan where I was making my final attempt to uh, Detroit Michigan and I get there and she's trying to ask me questions and I don't want to talk and she sees how sick I look I'm 200 and um you know, 19 pounds when I was just 275 pounds four weeks before. And so she knows that I'm like not doing well. And she just tries to get me to eat something. And I, and I managed to get down some tomato soup. She goes and lays down. And then um, I, I lay down and try to get some sleep. And when I tried to sleep, my mind was just racing and racing and racing, and racing. And it, it, it wouldn't stop racing and I couldn't stop it from racing. So I, I just got up and said, I'm just going to finish what I started. And so I left out the house and I get in the car. And um, I guess that the when I left, I forgot to like make sure the screen door didn't slam. So the screen door had slammed that woke up my mother. And by the time I started the car, my mother was coming through the front door and she just jumped on my car and was like, let me get you help. And so she takes me to the psychiatric care facility in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, the way that I always describe this part of the story is that I go into the psychiatric care facility and this, uh, the doctor comes in, he starts asking me questions like, why did you want to you know, kill yourself and what was going on? And I just kept screaming at him, leave me alone. I, I just want to die. A few moments later, uh, he, he leaves, he goes to finish some paperwork so they can admit me upstairs to the care facility. And uh, a nurse walks in, I call her the woman with green pants. And I call it this because at this point, my eyes were swollen, basically shut. And all I could see is just a, out, out a little slit to, to see that she had on green pants. And she comes in and she wraps me in her arms and she says, baby, I've been praying for you all the way here. God told me, you know exactly what to do. You need to say yes to him. Now, keep in mind, I was not a person of faith at this time. I was actually agnostic. I actually hated organized religion of any kind. And I, I was really into a lot of secret societies and stuff like this, not personally involved, but that's what I believe like runs the world. And uh, so whatever faith she was trying to present to me, I didn't I didn't want any of that. I was like, leave me alone. I just want to die. And I just like kept screaming that over and over again. And this woman prayed for me. My mother said for like 10, 15 minutes, it felt like three minutes for me because I just kept screaming the whole time. Just leave me alone. I just want to die. She left. She said she would come back. And uh, a few moments later, uh, my grandmother burst through the room. She had driven from Jackson to Detroit, uh, which is about an hour and a half. She had driven once my mom told her I was in there. And she had uh, ran through the hospital. She burst through the door. And she's out of breath. And she wraps me in her arms. And she's like, honey, I've been praying for you all the way here. God told me, you know exactly what to do. You need to say yes to him. So it was the same request two different times from two people who didn't know each other and never crossed paths. And I couldn't deny that it was God's way of trying to speak to me through people. But 
my heart was still so hard and I, I had so many doubts and my grandmother was a religious person. So she was supposed to say something religious. And I didn't understand how saying yes to God was going to heal my back, bring my girlfriend back, get my career back. And so I just kept saying, that's your God. Leave me alone. I just want to die. My grandmother prayed for me for about five minutes. She backs away. And the best way I know how to describe it is that in the room, it felt like there was heavy blankets weighing on top of all of us. It was so depressing in there. Uh, everyone's thinking the same question is, how did we let Daryl get here? And in the middle of that pain and that darkness and that frustration, I just heard this still small inner voice say, Daryl, will you say yes to me? It's what I would now call the voice of God. And the moment that I heard my father's voice, it was something about it that gave me the strength to mutter out, uh, it, 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 yes. And the moment that I said, yes, I promise you, it felt so good. The depression that I was under immediately left. My eyes actually got healed. I could open them. I could see again. I didn't know what to do. I just kept screaming, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. The doctor runs in the room because he hears me yelling, yes, Lord. And he goes, wait, what's going on? What's going on? And I was like, I was running from God and I just said yes to him. And he goes, let's hurry up and get this guy upstairs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this is a true story. That was the moment my life changed. That was the moment that I got hope. Now, I stayed in the psychiatric unit and I did some inner healing. Uh, but I came out completely transformed, a man of faith on fire to find out what my purpose was beyond sports. Now, okay, so, you know, um, I always thought that, you know, I was a Billy badass, um, you know, working with like, all these athletes and running a million dollar general nutrition center. And then, you know, uh, they say that, you know, God will humble you. He'll get your attention one way or another. And it just happened that uh, I had an accident and uh, now I'm 80% blind. But that's when I had to realize and humble myself and say, you know what, Lord, you're in charge. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just here. You, you direct my steps. So talk to us a, a little bit about, you know, having to become humble. And, and, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, being meek, is 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 weakness but actually in the bible that it says you know weakness is actually power under control and so when you humble yourself and become a follower um, it seems like life gets better and he knows what's best for you but sometimes he has to humble you in order to get your attention so what are your thoughts on that yeah i you know this is an that's a great question, by the way. So thank you for asking that. And, you know, the whole humility conversation is I, I usually just say, like, you got to be in pursuit of humility or always make sure you have relationships who can monitor your humility, because the moment you think you have it, you, you've lost it. <laughs> the moment I say I'm humble, I've ceased to be humble, you know, <laughs> and, and so uh but but I, I get your point is that you do have to embrace this process of what God's calling you to do and, and, and who he's calling you to be with humility and sensitivity and nimbleness of heart. So I wholeheartedly understand what you're saying. And I love the question. Um, for me, it, it that came from an, a, a belief that there is something in life more fulfilling than sports. Like there has to be God would not have let me survive that low moment if he didn't have something better for me. 
And so I think first was, and this is kind of ultimately where I eventually came up with my five-step transition roadmap that I mentioned in my book. And I walked people through those five steps. And that was, it was what God had walked me through in order to uh, get to a place of wholeness and happiness and fulfillment. And so the first thing is accept. That's the first you know phase of transition in my athlete's transition roadmap is that you have to let the past go. Right. You, you can't you can't you know, say you can't move forward while you can't drive forward while looking through the rearview mirror. And it was the same way for me. I had to stop rehearsing this narrative of like my best days are behind me and um, that my glory days are when I was an athlete. And I had to truly let that go and stop talking about how good I should have, could have, would have been and realize that I never was. <laughs> and that was a hard pill to swallow for me. And it is for a lot of athletes. You hear them, you talk about their sports career and their, their 40 time keeps getting faster. Their bench press keeps getting stronger because they're still stuck in the past. And they're trying to prove to you how good they could have been versus accept how good they actually became. And so I had to, I had to really get over that and close that chapter. And then I had to start believing in a brighter future. I had to work on my mindset. I had to make sure I was doing declarations and affirmations. I had to make sure that even when I felt like I couldn't find something that was right for my skill set or a job wasn't opening up or I felt unfulfilled in my career, that my best days are still ahead of me. I'm learning right now. I'm making career investments right now, but my best days are still ahead of me. And I had to maintain that mentality lest I quit or go backwards or throw in the towel. And once I got to that, I had to figure out what my purpose actually was. So I accepted that the past was the past. I started to believe that there was a brighter future. And then I had to uh, actually discover what that bright future was. And this is what people love, love to start. It's like, what do I do next? How do I find my purpose, my passion? It took me about five years to find it. I studied every major world religion. Yes, even though I was a Christian, I studied every major world religion. I read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, Simon Sinek's Why, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, uh, several others on purpose, meaning, and identity. And I, I started to find different things, different questions to ask myself to unlock a new layer of thought in, of my being. And I got to this point where I figured out my purpose. And I just began this process of investing in myself, asking mentors for what they saw in me, did, diving deep into what purpose and meaning and identity were, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And then after I figured it out, I just I just had to go do it. And I had to do it afraid. And I had to do it starting over from scratch. <laughs> you know, I couldn't be like, hey, uh, I'm a great speaker because I ran fast. Like, no, like you have to be a great speaker. You know, And I wasn't. I sucked. I was terrible. And I couldn't put two sentences together. And I used to be so insecure, Richard, that when people did icebreakers, I would leave the room and fake like I had to go to the bathroom so that they wouldn't call on me. So like and, like, and now look at you. Well, yeah, look at me, right? But this yeah. is the process, and it took years, and it took uh, surrender and humility as you took it, and it took like not just humility from doing it and and not becoming prideful, but humility just to ask somebody like, I really need help. Like I I I do not want to do this, but I know I'm supposed to. You know, like I know this is part of it. I know it's just my insecurity getting in my way. I know it's just my doubts getting in my way. And being humble enough to allow people to speak into your life and uh, being favored and fortunate enough to have people who saw the gifts in me. And I, and I think that's important to know. It's like some people might not have that. 
And it's important to find it and pray for it because that made the world of a difference to have coaches, to have pastors, to have leaders who saw in me what I was struggling to even see in me. And, you know, one thing you said, you know, one good, I mean, one good thing about me going blind is my hearing, my hearing is excellent. And (laughs) when I interview somebody, I actually hang on every word that they say. And you said something that I've been talking a lot about lately. You know, now today's days, you know, the Apple 13, iPhone 13 is about to come out. Somebody won't think about nothing about dropping $1,200 for a phone. But if you ask them to, you know, spend $700 on a course, they look at you like you're crazy. It's like, but you, you're investing in a phone, but you're not investing in yourself. You know, you're not investing, you know, in masterminds, you know, you're not investing in courses in learning. So talk to us about investing in yourself before you start investing in things. Yeah, it's so important. And and, and I think this is you'll find this interesting. Um, I had never read like a like a self-help book or something like that um, until after, you know, I survived suicide. You know, so I was a, a a full-blown senior in college before I ever read my first self-help book. And the reason why I read it uh, was a combination of two things. Number one, I remember being, I can't remember what year in college I was, but I remember hearing a teacher make a joke about how she was like, if you want to hide something from a black person, where do you hide it? And, you know, people were like, you know, the rich part of town or whatever, you know, saying all this stuff. And then she was like, no, you put it in between the pages of a book. And a few people laughed, but a lot of people did it because it wasn't really funny. And uh, it was very insensitive. And that, that moment meant something to me. And I remember thinking like, man, that's, that's racist, you know? And, um, and then when I fast forward to my senior year, uh, my pastor was very big on leadership and he kept saying, you know, leaders are readers, leaders are readers, you know, not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. And I just remember him saying that over and over and over again. And finally I was just like, Fine. he sees me as a leader. He doesn't understand. That I don't read. <laughs> so man, I should probably read. And I picked up a book and I'm telling you, this is going to be funny. I couldn't even make, I couldn't even read for more than five minutes without falling asleep. So like I would start trying to read and I would just be full blown sleep. And it didn't matter if it was the middle of the day or at night. I just it was boring to me, but I stuck at it. And I I honestly thought it was pointless until one day I'm walking um, back into the office with my boss um, at CMU. And this was this was now I had graduated. And um, and uh, and I'm talking to my boss and I'm asking her a bunch of questions and. I remember we were just dialoguing and she had said something to me and I said something back to her. And she was like, Ooh, that was really good. That was, that was, that was, um, an intriguing thought. And I remember thinking like, Oh man, I read that in the book. (laughs) And so so I, that's why I really started falling in love with reading is because I saw the benefit of it to say something that could help my boss and her leadership when she was my boss was just like, Ooh, knowledge is power. And so I just started devouring leadership development books and going to leadership development conferences because I started to see the reward and the payoff of it. And I would say that to people is like as it relates to investing in yourself through self-help books, you know, you want to read stuff that's going to help you get better at what it is you're called to do. And so uh, 
uh, and read books that give you a different perspective as well. And, and, and all that is, it's not, it's like sowing seeds in your garden. Like it's going to produce the harvest later and it's going to start to come out. And, you know, the old adage is you can't pour out what you haven't poured in. And so as you're creating content, as you're mentoring other people, as you're just sharing your life lessons through everyday relationships, you'll start to pull from the wisdom of the books you read and are able to help people at a higher level than you could had you not invested in yourself. You know, and so then I hit that. Let me touch on this real quick, because this is this is where I had to shift, you know, um, from books to high ticket coaching, which was a whole nother level of investment. I remember. Um, you know, the first quote I got for a high ticket program was like five grand. And I was like, there's no way I'm paying somebody five grand. To, it's like complete manipulation, you know, is what I thought. And then I, I realized that, hey, it's not a, you know, I'm worth the investment. You know, if I, I would never look at a property that costs a lot and be like, that's a scam. I would be like, man, that's a great investment. In fact, the more that I value that property, the more I invest in it. And I realized that I was having issues with paying for $5,000 in coaching, not because it was too expensive, not even because I couldn't afford it, but because I didn't see myself as worthy of a $5,000 investment. And when I started to work on that, to, to look within and see, man, why am I so afraid why don't I believe in myself that that I had to go through some healing and then that enabled me to start investing even more in myself? So I think it's important. I think people should say, like, man, you're worth way more than a book of investment. You're worth mo way more than a leadership conference. You're worth way more than, you know, a hiring coach to help you move forward in life and in family like you are worth the investment. I love it. Now, talk to us about because I've watched both of your TEDx speeches and both of them are, are amazing talk to us about that experience and what you uh how you got on the first tedx and the second and <laughs> what your experience was like and what it's has it helped at all for you of course man my first tedx talk has more than a million views and counting at the date of the recording of this podcast and I recorded it when I was still like tiptoeing around being a speaker, you know, I was still trying to play it safe, you know, and uh, the way that I, I, I earned that opportunity was I invested in a speaker coaching program and uh, they had a speaking competition with all of the participants of their program. There was probably about a hundred plus of us, maybe more. And um, I, it's so funny. We had to submit a four minute video and the, the person who had the best video in their eyes, they won a, a TEDx stage eventually. Like they, the, technically what you won was to work with a coach who would then get you on a TEDx stage, but you won a TEDx stage. And so uh, I won the event. And it's so funny because I, I wasn't going to participate and it kept eating up at me. And uh, I went and I said, I'm going to try to record my speech now. And if I don't do it in one take, then I'm not because my, my family's getting ready to eat dinner. And I didn't do it. And I came in. We were sitting down, getting ready to eat. We had just said grace. And I, my, my wife could just tell it was eating me up. And she looks at me and she goes, what's wrong? And then I was just I told her, I was like, man, I just I don't know. I just feel scared and and bummed out that, you know, that 
I didn't even try type of thing. She was like, well, you paid for that program. So you owe it to yourself to try, just go out there and try one more time. And if you don't do a take, if how, whether you like to take or not, just send it. So I did it one more time while my family was waiting for me to come eat with them. And then I just sent it and I won. (laughs) And so that's, that's, you know, that's how I got on that TEDx stage. And it was such an, you know, surreal experience because I have, I'm a very boring person. I have two favorite movies in the whole wide world. You probably won't even know them. One is uh, uh, Freedom Riders and the other is The Great Debaters. Have you seen either? I've seen them both. Okay. So you, so you know that, right? So, and if I had to pick an order, the first, my first favorite movie would be The Great Debaters. Now, when you talk about favorite movies of all times, although, although those are good movies, I haven't met anybody who that's their favorite movie. So it kind of like, you know, makes right, me. I got one for you then. Yeah, what's that? Knowing that I'm a 53 year old white guy. Okay. What, okay. what do you think my favorite movie of all time is? Um, probably something I don't know the name of. Uh, I don't know. The, I didn't go with the movie. I went with Happy Gilmore. <laughs> nope. The the, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, I wouldn't. I would have never guessed that. I haven't even seen that. And because I love it, you know, I'm a big history buff, but also when he was in jail, you know, they said he they asked him, you know, how you feel of being in jail? He says, my mind, my body may be in jail, but my mind is free. Yeah, I heard that quote before. And that kind of just got me going. So, you know, a lot of people and then I get a lot of people, they'll uh, they'll say, you know, I can bet what kind of music you listen to. And I'm like. Bro, I, I don't think you really know what kind I listen to. And they're like, I know who you listen to. And they make a list. And I go, do you know who Kirk Franklin is? And they're like, uh, no. I was like, okay, I didn't think so. So I, they look at my phone and I got like, when I was younger, I had, you know, I still have on my phone when I'm working out, Tupac, Biggie, Too Short, you know, stuff like that. And they're like, wait a minute, you're a 53-year-old white guy. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious, man. So I would have never guessed that. So now, uh, what I mean, because obviously it's been seen a million times, yeah. And it gives you um, authority a little bit, you know, when you put it on your pages, you know, that you're a TEDx speaker. But isn't it amazing that you're affecting that many people? You know, you're dropping that many little nuggets to these people. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you're, you're I want to say something there because I actually do help people with getting on the TEDx stage, and I actually host two TEDx events here with with the help of a team um, in Metro Atlanta. And I love TEDx platform, and I know it's something that can dramatically change um, a person's career, but more so, it can change our world. And I really believe in that because I TEDx is about ideas worth spreading. And so for me, it's not that it gave me authority; it's that it gave me visibility. Yeah. Around a message that I was very passionate about. So, and I know some people see it as that, like, and I use it in my bio, two time TEDx speaker, best selling author, you know, because it's like, ooh, okay, you know, I get it, but, but I want people to know, like, that I actually care, like, real talk way more about the impact, which is why I think my talk has a million views plus and counting is because I cared about the impact and, and work versus the notch in the belt. And uh, the visibility, yes, it did move my business, my life forward, um, grew my social media following on all accounts, grew my email subscribers, grew my podcast listeners, grew my supporters, got clients, got 
um, speaking engagements from it. All that stuff came out of that that talk. Um, but it, if you if you go and you look at the comments uh, long enough, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna you can't help but have your heart touched that this talk is making this impact in people's lives. And whatever you see on that comments, it's even more fulfilling and satisfying what I get in the DMs because people are more transparent, more vulnerable with me. I get messages every day. I mean, right as of now, there's 1,500 people every day that watch the talk. And so I get messages every day, one or two of somebody who's just like, this This is exactly what I need to hear at the right moment. Thank you so much. I mean, people you would have never guessed of. I'm talking about seven a seven-figure entrepreneur in Moscow. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, this is this is the, what, so all of that came because I want to speak in competition. And then from there, um, I was doing an interview on, uh, for a TEDx event that they were doing, uh, like a promotion material for their upcoming TEDx event. And they were interviewing influencers to get more visibility around their event. And I was one of those influencers they were interviewing. And I did a, a good job in their eyes. And so they, they then invited me to be a part of this year's speaking lineup. And I was like, it was virtual. So I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and I actually have probably seven or eight TED ideas. Um, and so uh, I, I pulled one out of the archive for them and, uh, and that's how I did my second talk. So now how do, you know, a, a lot of people think, you know, cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a speaker. I've spoken a lot on a lot of shade, stages and I, I, unfortunately I spoke in a lot of places where you, you know, a lot of people won't go speak prisons, rehabs, and Me a lot too, of, by the way, you know, so, and usually, you know, if you're a speaker and you go into a rehab or a prison, um, if you're full of BS, they're going to call you out in oh, every day, you oh. know, so you have to be real when you talk from the stage. So talk to us about, about that and how to connect with an audience. Talk to us about that. Cause I think that's very important is, you know, a lot of, they say that if, if you go see somebody speak, you may not remember the words that they said but you'll always remember how you made them feel so talk to us a little bit about that yes so everybody needs to go watch chris anderson's uh the ceo of ted's video about what makes an idea or what makes a good ted talk there's tons of science and other videos i would relate but that's the i love the way he shared it because it's easy and concise but there is a lot of science around storytelling Storytelling has been around for all of human human existence. It's how we pass down our traditions. It's how we create our culture. It's all a narrative that we tell ourselves. You know, even the languages that we speak and the rules that we follow, both spoken and unspoken, are all a story that we tell ourselves. And so when you uh, are giving a presentation, one of the ways that you connect with an audience is through telling compelling stories. And it's not about being animated. It's about articulating the idea in a way that connects the brain, uh, so not the brain, you know, whatever you call them, waves to each other in the same pattern that yours is. And so, you know, Chris explains it so beautifully, but the science will show that when a person is telling story, that's the, the parts of the brain that the storyteller is using to tell the story sinks and, and will mirror and the same wavelength that the listeners are. And so that's what Ted is about is planning that idea, that shape that's in your mind of that idea and planning in other people's mind, helping them to connect those dots to see it from your perspective. 
And that's why it's so powerful. And so you have to know that that is what you're doing when you're getting up there and speaking and you're not entertaining. <laughs> you're not trying to overload them with all the information that you know in the world. You're not even necessarily trying to inspire them. You're trying to implant an idea. And that's so different because if I were telling you that you were going in the kitchen to bake a cookie versus you were going in the kitchen to bake a cake, that would change the items you would grab. And so I tell people, if you want to connect with an audience, start thinking of it that way. And that's what you're looking. And you start to think like, okay, now I'm trying to explain this idea to them versus me trying to like force feed or spoon feed them this information. And, and, and your intent when you speak matters. And the fact that you understand how story works helps you to better connect with all the audience. That's what I will say. The other part that I will say is there's actually seven dimensions of a speaker that we teach and, um, you know, clients and stuff like that. And, and, and one of the most important ones where a lot of people feel is their body language, their body language. A lot of times because we're so focused on how people are perceiving us, we're forgetting the messages that we're sending with our body, our body. And so learning how to use hand motions, the full length of your body, the uniqueness of your body to emphasize and anchor in those ideas in your talks helps you to connect with your audience in a way that you never would think is even possible. I love that. So last couple of questions that I have, and I, and I want you to enjoy the rest of your day because I get the privilege of going to pick up my daughter from school. So I'm, I'm truly blessed. Um, last, how do we find you? How can we find your TED Talks? How can we, if we want to have you coach, coach us up for speaking yeah. or if we can just support your mission? How do we find you? Yeah, th thank you, man. I, I so appreciate that. Uh, you can go to DarylStinson.com. Uh, all of my information to connect with me is there. My, my coaching programs are there. My contact form is there. Uh, there's a link to all of my online courses and there's a link to uh, my apparel uh, to support the mission. There's a link to my nonprofit organization, Second Chance Athletes. And, and it's all there in the website. So just go to DarylStinson.com. Um, and you can also email me, Daryl at DarylStinson.com. Um, if there's a way that I can add value, if my story can be beneficial to your community. Uh, if you want anything other than counseling, I'm not a counselor. <laughs> so, so, uh, I'm, I'm a coach. And so if you want coaching, I can help you uh, specifically around speaking. Uh, but there are, there's a few people who hire me to help them navigate their life and build their life. Um, just, just reach out, start a conversation. You know, I'm the I'm of the persuasion that if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, you know, and and I don't force sales down people's throat. And, and they're always surprised when I'm 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 so non-pressure. I just have a conversation. And if it makes sense and you see value in our coaching relationship, we'll just move forward. And I think that you hold people loosely that way and life is so much easier for people. And so that's what I would say is reach out to me there. My TED Talks are on the YouTube channel. Um, so you can just YouTube my name and TEDx talks. And uh, there's also a ton of podcast videos and stuff out there. Nash, um, I've been on television twice and done a lot of podcast or radio interviews as well. So whatever you find out there, you know, if I, if it sounds like this, it's probably me. <laughs> I love it. So now last question, you know, uh, we live in a crazy world right now. We live in a COVID world um, here in New Jersey. Uh, a lot of parents lost their jobs, so a lot of parents are driving Uber, DoorDash, 
just to make a living. Um, so if I ask the per- average person in America to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask them to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're most likely. So I'm going to ask you a two, a two pronged question. One, if somebody is struggling in their business, what can they do in the next 24 hours? Actually, I'm going to ask you a three pronged question. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, second, um, if somebody's struggling with their mental health, what can they do in the next 24 hours? And yep. third of all, and I think the most important thing of all, if somebody is struggling with their faith, what can they do in the next 24 hours? I know that's a lot of asking, but you know, those are just the things I think people can actually use, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, the business and mental health, I can answer in the same, with the same answer business and mental health. Uh, you can, you don't have to wait to tonight to do this. You can set a 15 minute timer right now, right now, just start set a 15 minute timer and pull out a blank sheet of paper or pull out a Evernote file. Okay. And ask yourself, where's the tension in my life right now? If it's in my business, where's the tension? Like what's really bothering me? Where am I really stuck? Okay. In mental health, what, who really hurt me? Like follow the tension. That's all you got to do. Look for the tension. And you can probably look at, at earlier today if there was any. Some people already had it. And you look at that and you ask yourself, what is that showing me about me? How is this tension in my life making me better? What could I do to overcome this tension? A lot of times when we have problems in business and our mental health, it's because we see the problem as bigger than us. My depression is bigger than me. I can't take it. It's overwhelming me. My business is bigger than me. I can't take it. It's overwhelming me. My problems in my business are bigger than me. It's overwhelming. I I can't take it. And there's something about slowing down and recognizing your, your power over the problem. And so that's what happens when you sit down, you look for the tension and you start to pull answers from within yourself and God and your situation gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, you know, oh man, I should probably develop a routine in my mental health to, I should probably eat better. Oh, I should probably get um, some funny videos to watch to pull myself out when I don't want to feel this low. I should probably go see a counselor. You'll come up with your best answers because nobody knows you better than God and nobody knows you better than you. So that will fix both business and mental health problems, right? That's something they can do right now today. Okay. On the faith side, it's almost the same thing, but it's funny um, a lot, how many answers come out of solitude and stillness. But I would tell you, uh, you don't need a timer for this one. You just need to pause right now. You just need to ask God to show you whatever you need him to show you. To show up in whatever way you need him to show up. To give you clarity wherever you feel like there's confusion. You just ask. Yeah, so if you don't want to call him God, call him Father. If you don't want to call him Father, just say, hey, you up there. Just say you in there. If you Whatever your belief is, just call out to something greater than yourself and uh, and ask for guidance and and expect to either hear an answer or see an answer throughout your day today. I love it, brother. I love it. Um, Daryl, thank you so much for, for um, hopping on today. I know we've been talking about going back and forth for a while, and I'm so grateful that you took the time. And I think this is actually going to 
help um, change some people's lives. Cause you know, like you said, sometimes you, you, you said on a, par- a prior podcast that sometimes, you know, somebody will, will be inspired, but they don't take action after listening. And I think that this episode with you, there, somebody out there is going to take action and change their lives. So I, I just want to say thank you so much for hanging out today. And uh, thank you most of all for being a brother in Christ. So guys, de- definitely check them out. Definitely go to www.darylsinson.com. Definitely check him out. He's got a lot going on. Check out some of his podcast episodes. They're all amazing. I think I've watched them all. So I just want to say thank you, my friend, and keep on doing God's work. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's such an honor to be on today, and you take care. All right, brother. God bless you and the family. Love you, man. Love you, too. Peace. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new T-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.